Hey guys, this is Robert Breedlove from the What Is Money Show. And as you've learned by watching this show, Bitcoin is the single most important asset you can own in the 21st century. And one of the most important companies in Bitcoin today is Nidig. Nidig's mission is to facilitate financial security for all. They accomplish this by bringing a high level of professionalization and sophistication to the Bitcoin marketplace. As a true game changer in the industry, Nidig is safely unlocking the power of Bitcoin for forward-thinking individuals and institutions alike. By using Nidig, you will gain access to an end-to-end institutional-grade platform, providing Bitcoin OTC transactions, Bitcoin collateralized borrowing, secure custody, asset management, derivatives, financing, market research, and more. And all of these services meet the highest regulatory, governance, and audit standards. Led by Robbie Gutman, Yin Zhao, and Ross Stevens, Nidig has absolutely exploded onto the Bitcoin scene recently and is leading the way for ongoing institutional adoption in this nascent asset class. So please be sure to check out Nidig as a single source for all your Bitcoin needs. All right, guys, welcome back to the What Is Money show. I am sitting down today with author Jeffrey Miller. Uh, who's done a lot of interesting work in the domains of evolutionary psychology, um, which pertains to a lot of other areas we're going to talk about today, like Darwinism and game theory and things that really impact human behavior um, in, a, in a deep way. So, Jeffrey, welcome to the show. Robert, great to be here. Yeah, so I'm an evolutionary psychologist, and that means I try to figure out how human nature works, including our emotions and preferences and desires and values. And we try to do that by leveraging our understanding of prehistory, you know, using evidence from genetics and fossils, archaeology, anthropology, primate behavior. And we kind of weave that all together. I've been working in this field for about 30 years, and I've um, you know, most recently worked for about 20 years at University of New Mexico mm. here in uh, beautiful, sunny Albuquerque. Mm. And, uh, you know, a lot of my work is uh, focused on mate choice and sexual selection, but I've also got diverse other interests that we'll probably end up touching on. Plus, plus a newfound passion for crypto as of basically January this year. So I'm a, <laughs> a super good. enthusiastic newbie in that Cla- Class of 2021. Exactly. <laughs> That's excellent. Well, I'm sure we'll get into it, but there's this, as I mentioned to you offline, there's a very key component, perhaps the key component to understanding Bitcoin is glimpsing the game theoretic aspects of it. And, and those are rooted clearly in human behavior, but even more deeply than that in, in Darwinism, right? In Darwinian evolutionary theory, I guess you, you may even say. So maybe we could start there. Can you just, I know you said you worked on this for a long time in your career. Like, how did you get started into Darwinism? Um, how would you introduce it to someone? Maybe someone's a class of 2021 to Darwinism. Uh, so maybe we could explain it to them from kind of first principles. Kind of emotional heart of Darwinism to me is just the realization that every single one of our ancestors, going back hundreds of millions of years, managed to survive and reproduce. Mm. And we are the outcomes of 
sort of an unbroken series of evolutionary success stories. Mm. And if we weren't, we wouldn't be here. Some other creatures would be here instead of us. And, you know, Darwin's great insight was realizing the full implications of that, really thinking hard about what does it mean to be descended from many, many, many generations of organisms that didn't just survive, but also found mates, reproduced, raised, raised offspring if they're doing parental investment. Mm. You know, many of them lived in groups and had to deal with the challenges of group living, which touches very much on the game theory aspects that you mentioned. Mm -hmm. So I got into this originally when I was a, a naive young grad student in, in uh, psychology at Stanford back in the late 80s, and I'd planned to study cognitive psychology, learning, memory, categorization, et cetera. But there were a couple of postdocs who happened to come to my advisor's lab. My advisor was Roger Shepard, leading cognitive psychologist. These postdocs were Lita Cosmides and John Tooby, um, a couple who basically founded evolutionary psychology. And they were basically inventing it right under my nose at Stanford in the late 80s, trying to figure out how do you kind of combine an understanding of uh, evolutionary theory from biology with an understanding of kind of cognitive and emotional psychology mm. in terms of thinking about how did our minds specifically get shaped by evolution. They also brought into it, interestingly, a kind of Austrian economics, libertarian political philosophy. So Lita Cosmody's dissertation uh, back at Harvard had been to study the psychology of trade the psychology of reciprocity and how we kind of strike bargains with, with each other economically in prehistory, mm -hmm. way before money. And how do you develop systems of trust and accountability and kind of governance? How do you detect cheaters? How do you build up a good reputation for being trustable trade partner? Mm -hmm. And that literally is at the, the foundation of evolutionary psychology. You know, my field's kind of stereotyped as being all about mating. Mm -hmm. But in terms of its intellectual history, it really has deep roots in um, Austrian economics, the theory of uh, reciprocal altruism and trade in kind of evolutionary game theory, mm. and in these fundamental social questions of how do you get, you know, positive sum gains from trade, even in a little small scale tribal society before money. Mm. Interesting. Yeah, that's uh, I, I like that framing. The uh, it's kind of a, a positive, optimistic framing too. That you know we're all winners. You know, all all of our ancestors were successful at reproduction, um, and they're you know that would be a super slim minority, I would imagine, relative to all the animals that ever existed. So it's kind of like I love. Um, I think Richard Dawkins has this analogy. He talks about the digital river, like the genetic information flowing forward in time, and that each organism is like a filter for that genetic information, determining which genes are fit for reality or reproduction and which are unfit. Um, so I think this is an interesting way to look at it. And I, I, to your point about the relationship between evolution and economics, I, they're very similar in my mind because they're both driven by exchange and discernment right we're selecting who to exchange and what to exchange with who and who to relate with who to form groups with 
Um, and they kind of reinforce one another too. So through, you know, there's, there's this economic aspect, even to evolution where the organism's trying to develop certain features that let, let it accomplish more with less. Um, which is, I, I say this sometimes, and this may be kind of a rough analogy, but, uh, evolution is biological innovation and innovation is inorganic evolution, something like that. Like they're very, very similar patterns. Um, how then would you, maybe I'll just kind of give my rough understanding of general Darwinism, and then you can uh, give me some feedback or correction on it. Is Darwinism in this sense where uh, life is just experimenting through variation? And then uh, I guess you'd say natural selection. Nature is kind of that which selects. I know it doesn't necessarily have a conscious mind. It's a bit, um, I, f- I forget the term you use, where it's just, it's not, it's not like a, a deity selecting necessarily. It's more like the fitness of the environment favoring some genetics and disfavoring others. Um, so there's this expansion through variation, but then this culling of those mutations through fitness selection. Is that roughly correct? Sure. Yeah. It's basically um, what's called blind variation and selective retention is one mechanism. Mm. And a lot of people in psychology have made, I think, really good analogies between um, you know, evolutionary biological selection in nature and the mechanisms of creativity within the human mind, where mm. we also come up with kind of random variations or semi-random, you know, like if I'm playing chess, possible moves you could try, and then you test them out in a kind of mental simulation against what's the opponent going to do? What are the possible counter moves? Uh, What are my counter counter moves? Blah, blah, blah. So I think there are deep analogies between this kind of evolutionary selection in nature, the genetic level, psychological selection in humans, um, the way that, you know, products get invented in the marketplace and nobody's really sure who's going to buy them. Right. Um, how consumers will react, or also crucially, how uh, investors <laughs> will react, or how mm-hmm. regulators will react, and so all of these selective ecosystems have some uh, deep similarities. And I kind of come at this from uh, three different uh, kind of phases in my career. You know, in grad school, it was all about the kind of evolutionary biology, trying to understand that animal behavior, um, primate behavior. But then I did a postdoc at University of Sussex where uh, we did a lot of computational simulations, mm-hmm. genetic algorithms and neural networks and evolutionary robotics. And that was trying to apply the same evolutionary principles to the design of kind of artificial cognitive systems or AI or machine learning systems. Mm-hmm. So I think there's also a deep similarity between evolutionary dynamics and nature and the way that uh, a lot of machine learning like reinforcement learning works. Um, And then in the late 90s, I I worked in an evolutionary game theory center at University College London that was housed in the economics department. And I tried to kind of get up to speed with how economists think about applying game theory to human interaction. Mm -hmm. And so I think there's a computational side to this, there's an evolutionary biology side, and then there's kind of an economic side. And I try to weave all those kind of themes together, um, whether I'm trying to understand human mating and mating markets, 
mm-hmm. or trying to understand, let's say, virtue signaling at the political level, uh, or even trying to understand uh, the, the crypto industry. Mm, interesting. Yeah, crypto definitely touches a lot of those domains as well. So uh, I'm not sure I'm going to have the right terminology here, but so I guess what in the course of Darwinian evolution, there is a there's a factor of nature selecting or the environment determining what features or genes are fit exhibit fitness for reproduction, I guess you would say. It's like a competent survival strategy given the conditions. And but there's this also this choice, this conscious element, right? Where you talk about mate selection. Um how how do you distinguish between the two and how do they reinforce one another? I think that's very, it's very interesting in that we almost, we participate in our own evolution to some extent, I guess you could say. Yeah. So there's, there's kind of different, um, different levels of evolutionary selection. Sometimes you have the actual objective habitat, like a weather Mm-hmm. selecting organisms to be able to fit into some eco niche, some habitat. Like mm-hmm. if it's too cold, you evolve thicker fur, you evolve better thermoregulation abilities. You have different foraging strategies to find enough food, to build up enough fat to survive the winter. Okay. So that's objective selection by the environment. Mm-hmm. A little more game theoretic is a situation where maybe you're a vulnerable animal and you're facing predators. And the predators, you know, if, if you're a social animal, like in a herd, the predators aren't going to randomly chase like the nearest animal. They're going to make a predator choice. Who do Mm -hmm. I target? Who looks the oldest or the youngest or the sickest or the slowest? And they're going to go after that. So the predator choice in that kind of context can actually favor prey animals kind of showing off. I'm energetic. Mm. I can I can leap high. I can run fast. I can dodge well. Mm-hmm. And then you get prey kind of signaling, don't don't mess with me. I'm not worth chasing. Chase that other guy. Right, right, right. Um, you know, you just have to be faster than your your rival. You don't have to be faster than the predator. And then in the domain of sexuality, if you've got a two two sex species with sexual reproduction, males and females, then you get scope for each sex selecting the other in terms of mating. Mm. Who do I want to mate with? Whose genes do I want to combine my genes with? And then you get potential for the evolution of all kinds of extravagant signals called sexual ornaments, like the peacock's tail or courtship mm. behaviors like you know, the nightingale song or human conversation. Mm. And once you get to that kind of sexual selection domain, then the the sort of signaling issues get fascinating and and very complicated, and they can drive amazing diversity of signals across species, mm-hmm. but also amazing complexity of signals within a species, because there's basically no upper bound to how good you know you can appear as a as a mate, other than like what you can afford. Mm-hmm. in terms of energy energy and time and risk that's really interesting um so there's this i think in your book you describe it as there's a survival cost to these displays but there's a reproductive benefit 
right? It's not obvious that why, why would the peacock expend all this energy in these large showy tail feathers, but it's because it's increasing his chances for reproduction. So, um, I've been talking to John Verveke recently. Do you know who that is? Sort of vaguely. Yeah. Yeah. He's a university of Toronto psychologist and he's, um, he has this YouTube lecture series, but one thing that just popped into mind as you were saying that is he describes, um, our capacity for adaptation is premised on the same, I guess it's genetic and biological machinery that can lead us to self-deception as well. And I think some of your work tied into this, we're saying we, um, humans developed the ability to be an ideological animal as part of this, right? Like it was a, it was a reproductive fitness feature, but it also has opened us up to be, it's not necessarily intended to map to truth. It's intended to map for attention grabbing. I think that's roughly yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So the crazy thing about signaling, and it really took me like a decade to wrap my head around this fully. The crazy thing about signaling is there is a lot of truth being conveyed, but it's typically not truth about the content of the signal. It's usually truth about the quality of the signaler. Mm. Okay. So there's a, there's a big difference. For example, if you look at luxury uh, goods being advertised through expensive commercials, what an expensive like commercial for a, a luxury car or watch or fashion, you know, will include is typically a whole bunch of like either false or unfalsifiable just kind of associations like here's an aspirational lifestyle. And if you mm -hmm. buy our stuff, then you will enter into this like rarefied zone of success and mm -hmm. amazing mates and an amazing lifestyle. And if you ask, is that, a, is that even a truth claim? Not really, but the cost of the ad is the point. If a company like, you know, Tesla or Rolex or uh, Fendi or, or product can afford yes. really good models, really good directors, really high production values, great lighting, great locations. That kind of testifies to the quality and longevity and, and, and reputability of the company. Mm -hmm. And so that's, that's advertising, right? Yeah. And the peacock's tail is similar. Like the peacock's tail is just iridescent blue and green, you know, radially symmetric high spots that are large, they're not really conveying information like the, the peacock's tail is not making like a philosophical argument in a <laughs> right. text text form. Yes. It's simply saying, I'm the kind of peacock that, a, that can afford a big, bright, colorful tail. If I was sick or starving or had too many mutations, I could I would not be able to afford this this tail. Right. Um, so it's kind of a truth claim about the the peacock's genes and its body and its energy level. Now, this is interesting because I think we can tie this into Bitcoin, actually. Um, if, and tell me if I'm stretching the analogy too far, but it's almost like a form of biological proof of work, right? Exactly. It's, it's saying that, you know, I, as an organism, have obtained enough resources to satisfy my basic needs that I can afford the luxury of these showy peacock feathers. And from that same excess reservoir of 
I guess, energy, for lack of a better term, I could support a large and healthy family and, you know, guard a territory and all of these things. Is that approximately yeah. correct? Yeah, totally. Um, one of my favorite biologists is a guy, Israeli biologist, um, Amats Zahavi. And mm. Zahavi wrote this amazing book in I think, 97 called The Handicap Principle, mm. all about these kind of costly signaling principles. Why does the peacock's tail have to be so big and cumbersome? Mm -hmm. And Zahavi had a lot of analogies to modern human culture, including to advertising and to kind of ridiculous fashions and like, uh, why do rich business people, at least back then in the nineties, wear mm -hmm. you know bespoke, expensive Italian suits that are that are hand tailored? Mm -hmm. um, if you know Zahavi was writing that book today, I'm sure he would have mentioned proof of work mm. as a great example of costly signaling. Um, I don't know quite what his take would have been on on proof of stake or proof of history or other, you know, ways <laughs> that, that, that crypto tries to um, be credible. But certainly, I think there's a deep, deep link uh, between costly signaling theory and certain ways that you kind of, um, you know, validate blocks and blockchain in a way that that is is credible to everyone mm. and uh, you know i think your your series with michael saylor sort of dovetails very much with this point yeah i think so um and it, there's there's such an interesting connection there again between the economic and biological domain because if we look at gold through that lens clearly gold was valued based on the proof of work necessary to obtain it Right? It takes a lot of energy and time to go out and find this rare metal. But then we would also use that as a, a mechanism of display. We would ornament ourselves with gold, and that would become a, uh, a tool to attract mates or get attention, I guess. Or It's a form of conspicuous consumption, isn't it? That's the same thing as the suits and sports cars and all these other things, right? Yeah, absolutely. There's such deep, wonderful analogies you know, also between Zahavi's uh, handicap principle and Thorsten Veblen's theory of the leisure class, where he talks about conspicuous consumption. Ah, the, ve the ve Veblen good, right? Yeah, the Veblen good. So yeah. basically, Veblen in, you know, the 1890s, uh, almost single-handedly invented costly signaling theory. And then like 80 years later, biologists kind of rediscover it and apply it to sexual selection and animal behavior. And then we psychologists kind of rediscovered that. Yeah. Um, another example, though, that, that's worth mentioning is Michael Spence, the economist in the 70s, talking about conspicuous credentials and why do people pay for elite college degrees? Uh. Right? And that's another kind of proof of, of trait that you have the intelligence and conscientiousness and money to afford the degree and the Harvard degree or Stanford degree, you know, it doesn't necessarily carry information about what you learned when you were there, yeah. but it carries a lot of information about uh, your kind of like heritable intelligence and your hard work and yeah. maybe your family finances, et cetera. So I think there's, you know, there's like a wonderful kind of Venn diagram of like economics, biology, marketing, yes. um, crypto proof, proof of work that, still needs to be more fully explored, I think, because it still has a lot of big economic and social implications.
today. Yes, agreed. I, so I have a bit of a, and this is not my theory, but it's a theory I've gathered from just some reading and research that I'll try to air it out here. One, first thing, I'd like to say something about the Veblen good you just brought up. Um, so the, the definition of a Veblen good, as I understand it, is actually something, a good whose demand increases as its price increases, which is opposite from most other goods. So it's something that the more desired it is, the more desirous it becomes in a way. And I think we can define, or we could at least look at, um, money is kind of one of the ultimate Veblen goods. If we're talking about gold or something like Bitcoin, because actually the more expensive Bitcoin becomes, the less risk it has associated with it and the more likely it is to consume all other monies. The more fitness it has displayed, I guess, as the ultimate monetary technology. So I think that I just wanted to tie that in and define Veblen goods uh, for the audience. But this connection between the biological and economic domain, I read this book called The Territorial Imperative. It's kind of an older book, um, but there's this, this biological impulse among most forms of life to be territorial. So to gain and keep territory, mostly for the purposes of reproduction. Um, and I, my, my theory and the author's theory in the book and others is that actually human beings clearly were territorial. I don't think that's uh, contested, but we express our territoriality through property rights. Right. So we, we, and property we just consider as like the most basic form of property is yourself. You own your own time. You are self-owned. And then a secondary form of property is you can go out and take your time, energy, skills, talents, and combine it with different portions of nature to, you know, plant a farm or build a house or make a wagon, whatever it is. And then you own that property. And the theory of capitalism, at least, is that you should now be able to trade that property with other self-owned people. And that's how we create wealth and the division of labor and so on. Um, and that to me would also explain, so property rights center, how we've, I guess, abstracted this very innate biological impulse called the territorial imperative. It also explains to me how people, you know, money then would be the ultimate property effectively, because it can lay, it lays claim to every other property. You can take money, as the most tradable asset and acquire anything else. It explains why people have such a deep, why money has such a deep psychological significance to people because it's getting to this very base level reptilian brain, I'm guessing, um, mind state. It, it, have you thought about that much property rights and territoriality? Yeah, absolutely. So Robert Ardrey, I think back in the sixties did that territorial imperative book. And, you know, some of it was, uh, maybe a little simplistic, but I do think there's a deep sense of ownership that not just humans, but I think many animals have. Mm. And the reason is it, it kind of goes back to the Richard Dawkins concept of the extended phenotype, right? Mm. The phenotype is your, your kind of animal body and your brain itself, but your extended phenotype would include like your clothing and a nest that you make and a territory that you hold. And, mm. you know, if you're a spider, your, your web is your extended phenotype. If you're a beaver and you build a dam and you create a lake, you know, that makes it easier to catch food, the lake is your extended phenotype. Oh, okay. And so I think human, um, 
human people as social primates certainly have this sense of like, this is my tribe, this is our territory, and mm -hmm. we have a, a special claim to it. And where you get upset if someone infringes on your territory, you know, just the way a spider in its tiny little spider brain would probably get kind of upset if you messed with its web. Right. <laughs> it invested yeah. time and energy in making, um, or if some, you know, invading, you know, beaver couple took over your beaver dam. <laughs> so I do not agree with the kind of Marxist Leninist idea that property is sort of a, a recent cultural invention. I think it runs really, really deep in animal behavior. Yes. And when, uh, like one of my mentors at University of Sussex was John Maynard Smith, the evolutionary game theorist. And he did a bunch of papers showing that um, even for simple animals, um, if you kind of run the game theoretic modeling about what happens if there's a conflict between like an animal that has a territory and an invading animal that wants the territory, mm -hmm. you often get a situation where um, sort of property is nine tenths of the law. Like mm -hmm. if the animals assume that the animal that's already there kind of has a, like a stronger claim to the territory mm -hmm. than the new animal that actually helps you avoid a lot of pointless conflict right? and, and, and injury and death that would otherwise result. So I would not like, I don't know to what extent animal psychologists have looked into like do chimps or beavers or, uh, you know, other animals have a kind of intuitive, like sense of property rights, mm -hmm. but I would be really surprised if they didn't. And I think you're right that, that money is sort of the, uh, an abstraction of that. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, I just think of money as like money is liquid fitness. Mm. Right? Money is money is something that you can trade for any other form <laughs> of fitness that might be useful to you, whether it's food or territories or mates or childcare or protection or, you know, a better social network or whatever. Well, I have to thank you because this is called the what is money show. And I'm actually always looking for more answers. I have a list of probably 50 answers to that question. I'm writing a little bit about each of them. Liquid fitness is a new one for me. So thank you for that. That's awesome. Can we dive into, well, let's, let's actually further to your point. So then property, our mode of civilization, it's premised on property effectively. It has to be as to your point, you know, the law possession is nine tenths of the law. So um, there seems to be that there's this organizing principle then around the economics of property. We could say, maybe say the defensibility of property. Right, the more defensible it is, the cost. Uh, what would we say? The higher the cost to benefit ratio of attacking someone else's property, the more civilized we would become, because there's less incentive to transgress against others' property. And gold was a big innovation, actually, in that respect, because gold gave us a way to store a lot of economic value in a relatively small space that we could defend and secure. But it represented a claim on a lot of manpower, a lot of labor, right? A very small amount of gold was represented a claim on a lot of economic effort. And I don't, have you heard of this book, The Sovereign Individual? I've heard of it, but I haven't read it yet. It's on, it's on my list. Yeah. So it's going into 
it's written in 1997 and it predicted a number of things, uh, one of which was Bitcoin. They called anonymous cyber cash, I think. And they made the point that it would so radically alter this cost benefit on money, again, or on property, that it would it would radically reduce the incentives to violence um, and also would cause the separation of money and state, which would cause the government to shrink. So it's almost like the economic, this is probably related to Darwinism again, the economic realities that we face, which are largely based on the technological realities we inhabit, they percolate up through our political systems and determine how we organize ourselves. Yeah, totally. So, you know, the, the one kind of grain of truth in the traditional Marxist account is that you have your kind of economic base, which mm. is how you actually defend property and make investments and trade labor. And then you've got like the superstructure, which is all the, the sort of semi self-deceptive stories and narratives that we spin around, you know, why, why things are arranged that way and what legitimizes that system and so forth. Um, but uh, people haven't fully taken that on board and they haven't fully taken on board what a profound challenge to both the economic base and that kind of ideological superstructure, something like Bitcoin or, or crypto in general really is. Because, you know, just the way that shifting from kind of uh, barter where like, you have to have exactly something I want and I have to have something you want in order for us to strike yes. a bargain. Shifting from that to a money system where there's yes. you know, a medium of exchange, it's more abstract. Um, and you know, shifting from that to like fiat currency, which is like marginally easier to trade, but is subject to all kinds of mm -hmm. de de you know, debauchery and ruin. Mm -hmm. um, and then shifting to crypto. These, these kind of developments are so profound that it's extremely hard to predict their full implications yes up front yes and this the the other thing that really interests me about bitcoin is that all the property rights we've had historically anything is not a bearer asset let's say right like the gold you can hold and defend or the diamonds or whatever even anything i guess even the land if it's defensible again it all comes back down to defensibility other property rights were dependent then on that ideological superstructure as you describe it, right? This monopoly on violence or the legal system, like the shadow of force. In the shadow of force, all peaceful property transactions were conducted. But Bitcoin is something fundamentally different in that we now have a, a property right, a bearer asset that's pure information. So it's, it's literally the easiest, I mean, I'm not going to say easiest asset to custody, but the lowest cost asset to custody per unit of economic value, right? You could store a billion dollars of Bitcoin in your brain, you know, the, the cost yeah. being memorizing your seed phrase. Um, and it's a property independent of that monopoly on violence or ideological superstructure. So it largely, if it really succeeds, it renders that largely irrelevant. So I, I'm like, I mean, it's all, it's difficult to imagine <laughs> the implications. Uh, yeah, I think, you know, a sort of underappreciated aspect of gold is that um, it, 
it's not just portable. It's actually very easy to hide, and it's very, very portable by individuals fleeing warfare and oppression. That's right. Um, often you'll sort of dig up Bronze Age, you know, sites where people have kind of buried gold, maybe in mm. hopes of unearthing it later. And um, if you're the invader and everybody's just buried their their store value and you have no idea where it is, it's stored in their head, the location of it. Mm-hmm. It's a little bit Bitcoiny in that yes. in that sense. Whereas if all your wealth is in the form of land that could be taken or farmhouses and outbuildings or mm-hmm. um, herd animals like sheep or cattle, those are actually much easier to see and, and steal. So they're much less defensible than some highly concentrated form of wealth like like gold or or bitcoin yes but 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 you know of course in an ideal world you'd want uh here's where i'm going to become the you know the cardano shill a little bit you'd also ideally want some kind of secure decentralized crypto platform that could also secure property rights to other things like real estate ownership Mm -hmm. or you know, whose car is this? Or um, do you have a kind of secure economic identity that can can persist even in the face of like a civil war or disturbances or regime change? Mm-hmm. So ideally, you wouldn't be forced to put like 90% of your net worth just in the form of one crypto store value. You might also <laughs> kind of like to have uh other property rights and claims that were also cryptographically secure, you know, against regime change or against warfare. Mm. And where like, if you had like, here's my house in Albuquerque or whatever, I'm actually house sitting. So this isn't my house, but Mm. hypothetically, if this was my house and then like whoever invaded and took it over, but then peace was restored. I would like to be able to prove that, well, this was my house. Like, ex ante before the disruption and therefore right. I still have a claim to it um, rather than just having access to Bitcoin and nothing else. Yeah. So you're talking about the digitization of other property rights beyond just money. Um, mm-hmm. This is something I think about a lot as well. I would, I, I don't have the answers, but I would encourage you to check out. I hope I get the acronym correct. R G B, which is a higher layer protocol built on Bitcoin that enables um, probably a lot of the thing. And I don't know much about Cardano. um, Probably a lot of the things Cardano claims to do can be done by RGB on Bitcoin. So the, the, the key product, so you were describing the ability to flee and then return and claim the property that's there. The, the, the key component there is decentralization. So it's the, the database that cannot be corrupted or manipulated. And this is a property that, in my opinion, all other crypto assets lack at this point. I think Bitcoin is the only truly decentralized crypto asset in the world. May that change? Possibly. But as of today, um, I tend to think we're going to have a most, almost a full consolidation at the base layer into Bitcoin with other features being built on higher layers. Um, and that, that's just kind of my current read on, on the market there. Yeah. yeah. I wanted to ask you 
to clarify a couple of terms here. So we, you mentioned phenotype earlier, mm-hmm. which would be not only your biological features, but also the extended features of your environment. If you're, you know, the beaver's dam or the spider's web, how is that related to genotype? Is genotype the, the actual informational pattern that expresses the phenotype? Yeah. So your genotype is the information in your DNA. It's your genetic recipe for building a phenotype, right? Um, and, you know, there's a lot of intermediate steps. There's like your genome, which is the genetic information of your, your genotype. There's your proteome, which is the set of all the proteins in your body or a particular right. cell. And, you know, your epigenome, which is how your DNA has been modified by methylation and whatever other chemical processes. And then your phenotype is like your body, your brain, your behavior, whatever your genotype uses basically to make more copies of the genes in your body. So from an evolutionary viewpoint, your phenotype is just, you know, uh, a gene's way of making more, more copies of itself. Gotcha. So then territoriality or property then is kind of part of that extended phenotype. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Okay. Um, and so, so to all, um, intents and purposes, you know, modern people in a complex market economy have some of the most important parts of their phenotype or their extended phenotype are, you know, their educational credentials, their social media presence, their, what's in their bank account, their, their legally enforceable property rights, um, the social reputation, their, um, you know, anything that could be socially, uh, recognized as a type of value by others right. and anything where if someone else messed with it or undermined it or injured it, you would suffer a, a real and uh, concrete kind of handicapping of your ability to function in the world, including to survive and reproduce. Mm. So, so then political systems today, I mean, so the, the revenue to say the US government or another political system is taxation and inflation. Both of these are non-consensual exchanges of value. So they're confiscating value for market actors effectively. So the way I'm trying to, I'm viewing this through the biological lens is they're almost hijacking the extended phenotypes of people, right? So it becomes well, yeah, a, a lever for their own fitness. Yeah, government is a parasite that sucks up your your extended phenotype, and um, and sucks sucks away your liquid fitness, which is your your money, right? One way or another, as you say, through taxes or inflation. Wow. Um, or or I mean, another way of of handicapping your your fitness or you know undermining your extended phenotype would be any form of government regulation. Yes. That. That, that keeps you from being able to do the kind of economically valuable or socially reproductively valuable exchanges that you might want to do. So, um, you know, if, okay, so a night, nightmarish example, you know, okay, so I've spent like whatever, five years building up 100,000 Twitter followers. That has real value to me mm. in terms of my outreach, my influence, my, my, my career, you know, selling books or, or whatever. Uh, 
you know, Twitter could potentially shut me down right. arbitrarily tomorrow right. if they decide I've said something they don't like. And I basically have no no recourse. So that's an example of big tech rather than government um, kind of stealing value from you. Yes. And of course, they've written their terms and conditions in a way that in a narrow technical legal sense, that's their right to do it. Right. But from a kind of broader biological social perspective, that's as much an act of violence against, you know, my extended phenotype as, um, you know, government kind of seizing my, my property if they, you know, unfairly claim it was involved in some kind of shady deal or it's it's just as um much of a phenotype handicapping event as you know the fed printing trillions of dollars and sucking the value out of my my bank account right such an such a unique way to look at it i love it is there a biological equivalent of this or an analog of government in nature i mean you mentioned the term parasite um i know that uh, I mean, clearly there's parasites in nature. I don't know. Maybe you could just speak a little bit to that, the dynamic that we have today. Like what we, do we just have an excess of parasiticism, if that's a word from the government because of fiat currency? Like, is it, we have a, a an imbalance that's something maybe you wouldn't see in nature or is this perfectly normal? I, th I think it's fair to say that government is kind of relatively new on the scene and, and on a kind of evolutionary timescale. You don't mm. really see examples of social structures above the level of like fairly small groups and social primates. You know, you might have a chimp troop of like 30 individuals and there is a dominance hierarchy mm -hmm. and the kind of top ranked chimps kind of... Um, help resolve conflicts and kind of keep the peace and provide some kind of social stability, but they also get reproductive and, and food benefits in return. And mm -hmm. so there's kind of a governance model, but basically it's, yeah, there is actually some interesting evolutionary psychology work on leadership and followership. Mm. Like what benefits do, do members of a tribe get from kind of respecting like one person you know, alpha male or whatever, as kind of the the peacekeeper, the decision maker, the adjudicator of conflicts. Mm -hmm. And there's kind of an, a notion that like a rational individual in a tribe would actually be willing to pay, you know, a little bit of their excess food mm -hmm. or respect or even like mating opportunities to an effective, competent, good leader in exchange for the whole tribe, you know, benefiting from good leadership. Right. And I think, I think that totally makes sense. It's just like, you know, every effective corporation has a CEO that's the chief decision maker yeah, and has some hierarchy of command and control. You know, there's no effective military force in the world. That's, that's like a, a flat hierarchy. Right, that's right, 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 right. Yes. It just doesn't work. Those, you know, anarchic barbarians have been completely outclassed and outcompeted by people who could form effective hierarchies. Right. But I think the scale of the hierarchy now, 
you know, having governments that kind of um, organize societies and economies for hundreds of millions of people and that take like 40% of GDP, that's, that's new. Right. And I think that's largely, um, largely parasitic and, and, and not, we're not getting value from money there, in right. my opinion, as a kind of um, lifelong libertarian. Yes. Yes. So it, it, it makes me think of that old saying where they say, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. So in times of stability, you kind of want flatter, more decentralized hierarchy because that is more sustainable over time. But in times of volatility or crisis, you kind of need to centralize decision-making to go one way or another. Um, and I think, uh, Government, as in my study of it, government arose in the agricultural age. Basically, once we started creating economic surplus, we had created something worth stealing. You know, other tribes would want to steal the food or tools or whatever they may be. So that necessitated the creation of a protection producing enterprise. But the problem with it is that so then you have a local monopolist on violence. The problem with that, though, is that they always, because they're a monopolist, they always end up charging monopoly prices for the protection from violence. And that usually means they start wielding violence over those they're supposed to protect. So is there any, and again, this gets back to that defensibility of property thing. It's like the more we can make property independent of government or costly for government to seize, the more civil we would become. Is that, am I thinking about that correctly? Yeah, I haven't quite connected that sort of um, protection racket thinking to like the promise of crypto before, but I think that totally makes sense. Um, Once, you know, I think the warlord is like the, the basic default system of governance, like the mm. warlord plus lieutenants and sergeants running a local protection racket. Mm. You know, that's basically like what everything defaults to if there's a failed state. Right. You don't get anarchy. You get anarchy for like a week and then you get warlords. Yes. And you get warlords saying, I will help protect your property for a price from that other local warlord who would charge an even higher price. Yes. So yeah, it's kind of like a monopoly and you could replace me, but it'll just be some other guy who's even worse. Yeah. That depends on individuals and their property being vulnerable to certain kinds of, of theft or expropriation. And the harder the theft is, you know, the less leverage the warlord or the government has over you. Now, the problem is, you know, we're physically embodied. So your local government always has a kind of monopoly over the use of force against your, your phenotype proper, your actual body Yes. and, and the ability to imprison you or execute you or exile you or whatever. But if you can at least make most forms of your extended phenotype, your property, you know, relatively insulated from that, then you've taken away a lot of power that government has over you. Right, right, right. right. 
and and people tend to have this instinctive aversion to seeing you know governments like beat torture abuse and kill other individuals bodies so modern governments tend to like avoid the pr issues that come from that <laughs> yeah right right yes and and like they mostly use systems of control over your reputation and your money right rather than your physical body so i think one of the promises of of crypto you know whether it's bitcoin or ethereum or cardano or or you know algorand or what whatever whatever it is is it just removes many of the tools in the government's uh armory mm. for exerting control over you and so of course of course of course that's why governments are are freaked out mm -hmm. by crypto they understand perfectly well what the stakes are mm -hmm. and i i think kind of privately a lot of them are are kind of in in full panic mode mm. once the full implications of crypto become apparent to them and that they can they can no longer be the monopoly warlord protection racket yeah um that's probably like an existential threat to their power of course right and and you know bitcoiners understand this better than most government uh functionaries or politicians do at this point yeah and hopefully they'll still be blindsided but they might catch up and they might you know crack down right yeah so i i like the way you put that a lot um so and i think misa said this well that no government can remain unpopular for long right that's sort of the nature of government even the despots they depend on acceptance by the people because they're just the people ultimately have the power whether they realize it or not throughout history it ultimately rests with them um and to your point they so therefore they are more incentivized to attack you through money or reputation than overt violence they've kind of especially in the age in the digital age right where we have all transparency is really high you know you you do well i described this to you where like the the mlk when martin luther king marched in alabama he wasn't the first guy to do that but when it was televised and millions of people saw it that's what started driving the legislative change in the civil rights movement so the media that's again the technology landscape really influences how the human collective responds to these these changes um and one thing so bitcoin too is interesting here because not only does it give you it's reducing that attack vector on your money right you, you hold your savings in bitcoin do it properly it can't be touched or seized i don't know if you've heard about these other experiments taking place um i'm sure you've heard of the lightning network which is the transaction layer for bitcoin there's a an app called sphinx chat that actually this podcast my podcast is published to and it's built on top of the lightning network so that this podcast is effectively uncensorable once it's put up it's anchored on the lightning network it's transmitted via sats and it can't really be taken down so i think bitcoin also holds this great promise to renew the original hope for the internet to decentralize media and make speech unstoppable and all of these things do you have thought so clear that's an existential threat to government do you have thoughts on 
how the parasite might respond from a biological standpoint? I mean, if it sees the writing on the wall, how bad do you think things will get? I think there is, I mean, there's a worrying move where there's kind of like a critical mass of governments that have started to kind of sort of understand the crypto threat to their their hegemony and their legitimacy and, and mm -hmm. their, their popularity. It's not yet, I think, perceived as an overwhelming threat. I think if, you know, the number of people who held Bitcoin increased like 10x and it got into like the low billions rather than hundreds of millions, you know, that would start to get their attention. If, um, I think in a way, like the US government seems to be using the legacy finance system as kind of like an indicator or a signal of how big is the threat of crypto. Mm -hmm. So as long as like the mainstream banking system and credit card system and payment networks and all of that are still kind of looking similar to what they were 10 or 20 years ago, they probably won't freak out that much. Mm -hmm. But I think if crypto starts making serious inroads into um, creating other secure, decentralized, uncensorable systems like new kinds of social media where you know mm -hmm. you can't suddenly be demonetized by YouTube mm -hmm. or new kinds of NFTs where your ownership of some art or music is you know secured on a blockchain and not dependent on some like legacy art uh, provenance proof system. Mm. This is kind of salient to me because my daughter is a professional artist and she mm. interacts with the art world mm -hmm. um, or property rights. You know, if we got to a point hypothetically where real estate agents started really becoming unemployed and people were just buying and selling houses um, based on some alternative system that didn't involve kind of traditional title searches and mortgages and all of that, that stuff. Um, I think, frankly, most people in government don't have the imagination or capacity for abstraction to really mm. understand how much of a threat crypto is yet. Mm. Maybe in a way, once, once enough of them get kind of greedy enough at a like a personal and family level that mm -hmm. they go, ah, we should, we really should invest like 10% of our net worth in, in some kind of crypto. Then they'll start to learn about it. You know, the way I did this year. Yeah. Yeah. And then they might start going down the rabbit hole and listen to your podcasts and, mm -hmm. and whatever. And then, it, you know, then the light might go on, but hopefully, hopefully by that point, they'll be so invested in it that they might go, Hmm. <laughs> you know, they might have like mixed motives, uh, as, as the game theorists call it. And they, they might not act purely in the interests of the U S government at that point. It's so interesting. You put it that way. That is, that maps almost perfectly to my theory, actually, that I, I see it because Bitcoin is individually accessible and ultimately everyone's acting in their own personal self-interest that you get kind of forced into Bitcoin over time, you know, at an individual level. And then once you've, you're holding some of this asset, 
it really changes your incentives and your perception of it, right? I, I, uh, what this calls to mind is that selective attention experiment I'm sure you've heard of where they, they pass the basketball back and forth. You're supposed to watch the number of passes. You missed the gorilla. So your, mm-hmm. your evaluations, or I guess your, um, your objectives or goals actually determine how you see the world. So if all of a sudden these politicians are holding Bitcoin, they're going to just look at the world differently um, and I, I, I see Bitcoin as dissolving these power structures from within by exactly that, that sequence you just described. And I wonder too, if the, the cost benefit, when I'm thinking about it from a government standpoint, they can't remain unpopular for long. Anytime they try to clamp down on it, um, they can seize it off centralized exchanges, I guess, but you're, there's always going to be this diehard cohort of cohort of Bitcoiners, these anarcho-capitalists that have it custodied properly and will, you know, fight to the death for it. And I think that obstinate minority becomes really hard for government to resist. They kind of capitulate to um, to the preferences of the minority over time. Um, yeah, but I mean, in a way, you can already see how freaked out government is mm-hmm. <clears throat> because, you know, on your, on your uh, IRS 1040 form now, Oh yeah. There's that question, that big question, you know, do you now or have you ever owned any cryptocurrency yeah. or traded in it? And like there's no other asset class that yeah. they that they ask that about, you know, within That's the right. first like two inches of the 1040 form. Yeah. And so obviously it it it's partly a signal that's designed to intimidate. Yeah. And it's designed to create the impression that you are extra likely to be audited. Yes. If you own crypto, and if you don't use your, you know, crypto accounting software, tax preparation software accurately, then you're going to be in trouble. And like, they don't ask, do you own, you know, an index tracking stock fund or, you know, bonds right. or any any right. any you own NFTs? They don't care. Yes. Um, I think that's one of the little clues that you know the IRS is sort of starting to understand the threat. Um, so yeah, one possible tipping point is, okay, enough people in, uh, enough politicians, enough people in the deep state, enough bureaucrats start to own Bitcoin that mm-hmm. they've got skin in the game and they're not going to um, undermine their family's financial security for the sake of just imposing regulations that are somehow in the aggregate better for the government they happen to work for. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I'm really glad you put it that way because I've been struggling to articulate it a bit, but that, that helped me a lot. So property is an extension of the phenotype. Money is the highest form of property. Bitcoin is the best form of money. (laughs) So we have, we've created with Bitcoin, this, I don't know, seizure-resistant seizure extended phenotype. Yeah, it's funny because it kind of puts human beings in this weird state where it's kind of like on the one hand, there's your genetic information, which is absolutely crucial. And on the other hand, there's like your private keys. Yes. Your crypto. And everything that happens in between is just sort of like meat space nonsense. Wow. And and you're 
to the extent that your private keys eventually could cover most forms of value that matter to you, for example, yeah. any anything from your actual like Bitcoin-y money, like digital store of gold to your property rights in real physical property to your like academic credentials or I've kind of had this fantasy that like as a university professor, you could put all of your your papers, your research, your writing up on a secure decentralized blockchain and you could have, you know, uh, citations and references to it and maybe even commercial applications of it. And then you would have a kind of decentralized uh, intellectual property uh, ecosystem. Science could operate sort of on a blockchain based system. So basically everything that matters to you as an individual in terms of your um, your extended phenotype, whatever forms you know that takes could be uh, cryptographically secured. And, and that means you know the attack vectors that government has against you or even that other people have against you, like if you get mobbed or canceled or mm -hmm. um, your your you know, political beliefs become ideologically unwelcome, you know, you'd also be relatively safe against that kind of thing. Mm. Wow. So you're, <laughs> that's a cool way to look at it. Your private keys are almost as important as your genetic code. <laughs> Sounds like a pretty significant human invention. <laughs> I think so. And, you know, I've kind of, I have kind of the zeal of the convert in terms of being a crypto newbie, so I might yeah. be um, over enthused about this. I've been known to get my my sort of enthusiasms carrying me away sometimes. Uh -huh. But on the other hand, um, at least tens of millions of other people seem to be pretty committed and excited about this, including most of the really smart people I know. Yes, yeah, I think that the in this space, the enthusiasm actually just seems to increase. Uh, the more, the further down the rabbit hole you go, the more interesting it becomes. Um, so we we just we left off talking about the on that IRS form, the first line: "Do you own crypto?" Is that then a form of signaling? Like this parasite is signaling to the host. Hey, we know what you're up to. You're trying to, you know, we see that you can almost, I guess, call Bitcoin kind of like a parasiticide in a way, right? It's sort of poisoning to the parasite or reducing the parasite's um, ability to, to feast on the host. Is that then the, the IRS or the government then signaling to the host organism, like, be careful what you do because I will attack you in different ways? Oh, absolutely. I think um, it, in a system where government operates largely through sort of indoctrination and propaganda and veiled threats and these sort of signals, um, you can move markets, you know, you can create fear, uncertainty and doubt or FUD and FUD mm -hmm. is a signal and often it's a highly engineered signal. Mm. Sometimes it's engineered by whales, big investors. Sometimes it's engineered by governments or, you know, mainstream media. Um, I think it's very important for investors and everybody in the crypto space to have a kind of 
uh, realistic sense of how that signaling system operates. Mm. Because, you know, in an ideal world, different crypto projects would attract investment in proportion to their kind of long-term real value to actual people doing real things. Mm -hmm. But in given market psychology as it works, you know, everybody's very, very uncertain about the long-term value of most of these projects. Mm -hmm. You know, what's what's the natural value of Bitcoin? Is it is it a hundred thousand dollars? Is it a hundred million dollars in a hundred years? It, it's very, very hard to tell. So some of your signals that you rely on come from other investors in the form of like short-term price signals, mm-hmm. you know, um, support and resistance levels and whatever the technical analysts are talking about. Mm-hmm. Some of it is government signals, like, you know, whatever Elizabeth Warren says. And of course, mainstream asset markets are not immune to this. I mean, when, when the Fed is about to make, uh, you know, a major announcement about uh, interest rates, Wall Street pays attention. Yep. And that, that moves markets. And that's a signal. And the Fed knows that it's a signal and they treat it very, you know, cautiously because they know mm-hmm. it will have billions and billions of dollars of impact. So I think the more that everybody understands about signaling theory, the better. So what could you, I mean, when we look at it that way, it's almost like all, all organisms and organizations and entities is just constantly signaling, right? We're constantly putting out signals, receiving signals, interpreting signals, modifying our own signals based on the signals we've taken in, pushing them back out. So there's just this dynamical system updating itself through, through signals where, I mean, where does this originate this and this, we could also talk about, I guess, virtue signaling as part of this as well, which is the title of your upcoming book. Um, what are we doing with all this signaling? Is this just uh, Darwinian coordination mechanism and how to, I guess, how do virtue signals fit into that as well? Because another thing we didn't mention, but I think the IRS or the, the power structures that be, they try to virtue signal against crypto and Bitcoin, you know, oh, drug dealers, terrorists, whatever, money laundering. Um, maybe you could just describe signaling, signaling theory, how it fits into Darwinism, and then maybe intro us to, to virtue signaling. So, yeah, we've already talked about a number of, the, you know, the signaling systems like the peacock's tail is mm-hmm. the sexual ornament that attracts potential mates. Um, luxury goods, as analyzed by Thorsten Beblin, mm-hmm. show your basically your ability to burn money on conspicuous, relatively useless stuff. Mm-hmm. And and you know the point of buying the luxury good is not that Rolex makes a better watch than a Timex you know digital mm-hmm. watch for ten bucks, but rather that they've created common knowledge among everyone. Rolex is expensive. James Bond wears Rolex until Omega took over that franchise. <laughs> and that <clears throat> so they've created common knowledge that this is supposed to be prestigious and high status. Yeah. Um, and we've talked about um, educational credentials as signals. You know, people people might feel 
there's a lot of American bourgeois parents who are kind of a little embarrassed by a Porsche for themselves, but are not at all embarrassed to talk about, yeah, I sent my kid to, to you know, Columbia or Stanford or whatever. Right, right, right. Which costs right. more than a Porsche. Yeah. So signaling in general um, depends on this game theoretic principle that it's got to be hard to fake in order to be reliable. So it needs to have this property that if you didn't have the underlying trait that was being signaled, you wouldn't be able to send the signal consistently or reliably or in a way that was kind of socially recognized. Mm. So it's Olympic, you know, week in, in Tokyo this, this week and awesome athletes are getting awarded gold medals for incredible stuff they do. Now, the gold medal itself is not that hard to fake. You know, you could get some metallurgist to create your personal gold metal mm -hmm. and you could claim, yeah, I won the, the decathlon <laughs> or the air pistol or whatever, but it's extremely easy for someone to check. You know, you go yes. on a first date, you claim to be a gold medalist. They go home, they Google you. Like, no, you didn't win it. Right. <laughs> so it's hard to fake in, in the sense that uh, the information is out there. It's cheap to it's verify. Easy, it's cheap to verify. It's hard to, to fake. So in the information age, a lot of signals take that, that kind of quality that there's decentralized information, you know, that's easy to Google and you can, you can check, you know, someone's credentials. You can check like how many citations exist to my scientific work. You can go to Google scholar and check it. It takes five minutes. You can see, oh, Miller has this many citations. Somebody else has this many. So any kind of signaling where the information's reliable about some underlying quality of interest, um, and it's hard to fake it if you don't have that quality, uh, that's reliable signal. Now, when it comes to virtue signaling, that's a particular kind of signal it's usually, you know, social or sexual that says, I have a particular kind of moral personality. Mm. I have certain ethically relevant traits like honesty or integrity or like sexual fidelity, or um, I will show up on time with my webcam working properly or whatever <laughs> it is. And um, so anything that people evaluate using their kind of moral psychology like is that a good person or a bad person you know are they reliable or are they flaky um would they make a good long-term sexual partner or are they kind of exploitative manipulative psychopathic whatever mm -hmm. um virtue signals are anything that let you send those those bits of information about your kind of moral character to potential sexual partner or to a friend or a colleague or coworker or to a group or to a potential employer or investor or um, you know anybody who wants to evaluate your uh, moral character mm. then it's worth sending a, a hard to fake virtue signal interesting so it's yeah back to this cheap versus expensive form of signaling the cheap form is not reliable because it can be produced ad infinitum. Uh, it's not necessarily truthful, whereas the expensive form 
again, it incurs that cost or proof of work. So it tends to be more reliable. Um, and this is interesting, again, just to relate it to money because money is very similar. Money is a communication medium. If it's cheap to produce, it's not reliable. That's what fiat currency is. That's why it goes to zero. But if it's hard to produce like gold or Bitcoin, it tends to be more reliable, both in its sustainability as a monetary system and it transmits more reliable signals that you're actually, um, I guess, conveying that you really put work and energy into it. Yeah. With virtue, though, virtue is such a, uh, a nebulous kind of thing. How are we? So, we're all. So, for, uh, the first point I think I noticed from your book is that it's not necessarily negative. Like when we say virtue signaling or we hear that in the media, I think it's universally considered negative, like someone's faking their virtue, basically. But you can also do it authentically, right? You can actually have virtue and really just be. Uh, exhibiting the patterns of behavior that that virtue involves authentically i guess you might say but how what is the difference between cheap and expensive virtue signaling then because you could very clearly if it's just words you just say whatever i'm honest i'm great versus the expensive version would be action how what, how do you distinguish between the two i think there's some there's some really interesting kind of game theor theoretic nuances here that that might be worth exploring for, for a few minutes. So for a signal to be reliable, it needs to be hard to fake, but that can take multiple forms. That can, that can include like physically expensive in terms of materials, energy, resources, time, mm -hmm. or risk. But something could also be hard to fake by virtue of a so, like a distributed social consensus around the value of something. Mm. Okay. So for example, let's take, um, let's take a pop star like Billie Eilish. Okay. She's got a new album out today or whatever. Mm -hmm. So she's got tens of millions of followers and intense fans, and they have a view that she's a cool musician. Mm -hmm. Okay. Does it cost Billie Eilish anything in particular in terms of like proof of work to attain that reputation? Yes, it does certainly cost, you know, some creativity and time invested and mm -hmm. conscientiousness and, you know, collaborating with her brother to produce this music and doing the sound engineering. But her social reputation as a musician is not really in proportion to that amount of work. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's in proportion to how well does it hit the psychological buttons of the listeners in terms of making them excited mm. and making them mm. feel like I'm participating in a little subculture or fandom mm. right, right, around right. this musician. Right. So somebody who invested, you know, equal amounts of work into their musical career, may or may not achieve the same level of kind of consensual success. So fame is funny like that. Fame is a reliable signal of at least how many people have heard of you. Yeah. How much brain space do you, do you kind of have collectively across the culture? Oh. And to me, that's a little bit like proof of stake, dare I say it. Um, 
proof of stake isn't exactly fame-like. It might be a little more similar to like the reputation of a scientist that's based on how often their work gets cited by other scientists. Right. Okay. Some of the papers I've produced that have been most cited, like I had some, the first paper I ever did, which is on, on designing neural networks with genetic algorithms. First paper I ever published, age 24 in grad school, cited more than a thousand times. By far the most impactful scientific paper I've ever done. It didn't honestly take that much work to do. Mm. It just it just happened to be like somewhat insightful and one of the first things published in that area. So it kind of got a big first mover advantage. Mm. And so everyone cites it and everyone else who goes into that space knows that like, oh, that's one of those papers you kind of have to cite. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And is it fair? Maybe not really, but um, there is an objective reality about the kind of consensual respect that, that certain, you know, scientific papers or ideas have. Mm. So you can get reliable signaling that's relatively cheap in terms of resources, but that's still very hard to fake because the information that it draws upon is very decentralized. Mm. And where you wouldn't like nobody has the leverage to kind of fake the, the the required number of like music fans or the required mm -hmm. number of citations. So there's some systemic like uh, honesty system involved. Right. And 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 I think this is where I I have a little bit of a a difference of opinion with some of the really hardcore like Bitcoin maximalists who are like, there's no way you can secure money other than energy mm -hmm. invested. Maybe they're right, but there might be other ways to secure um, value in a, in a highly social species like ours, because we already, we already do that in lots and lots of ways through systems like reputation or systems like, you know, voting. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, democratic voting systems are like more or less reliable most of the time in some countries at least yeah i that's super super interesting way to look at it so i think that so there's the work itself the energy expenditure creating some value but there's also the possibility of this value that's derived from the network consensus right if other people enjoy billy Eilish's music, then all of a sudden you feel like you're part of this group and you're driving value from others deriving value from the music. So you get this emergent property or something more than the sum of its parts, right? By being kind of a network effect, I guess you might say. Um, so there's some value derived from the network participation. A lot of that accretes back to the artist. And this is something I've always thought is so interesting. I guess you'd say this is brand or reputational value, right? A lot of that accretes to the artist or the creator, but they themselves do not control it. They have some influence over their brand. They have some influence over their reputation. You know, they can make kind of good moral decisions and perform well and all these things. But at the end of the day, they don't actually control that consensus, right? It is distributed. All their fans could decide. And it doesn't have to be any part. It doesn't have to be the artist's fault. Some other artist could come along. It's better. And maybe all their fans just leave for the new, better artist. So it's this interesting 
dynamic where it's your greatest asset as a creator, your reputation or your brand, but it's an asset you don't control at the yeah. end of the day. So, and I liked how you said it's how much brain space you occupy in the fans or the audience, because that gets back to kind of territoriality, right? There's this, there's a limited amount of attention in the world. Creators are all competing to get eyeballs and time, basically. Um, and it's it's a territorial race. Um, and then you're maybe there is some connection here to proof of stake because here's where I'm at with proof of stake. As you mentioned with your paper, it was it had this first mover advantage, so it had kind of a winner take all dynamic, and that it got a lot a ton of citations in a maybe what we'd call in markets like a blue ocean market. Maybe you were breaking some new academic space and it became kind of a route um, to a broader branching of, of knowledge. Um, the problem with proof of stake in, in my mind, as I understand it, is that it is inherently centralizing. So it's like the more you have, the more you gain, right? So it doesn't, uh, Whereas proof of work would be distributive to wealth, like the more work you actually do in the system, the more uh, you share in the proceeds of that wealth creation. Proof of stake would be the opposite, actually. It's just the, the larger claim you have, the larger your claim will grow. So what that does is it rips the system apart. Central banking is proof of stake, by the way. It's whoever has the gold gets to print the most money. Right, I have the most gold, so I get to run the, the most irresponsible monetary policy. And what does that do to the middle class of the largest dominant central bank, like the Fed? It rips rips society apart. You get richer, the rich get richer, the poor get poorer. Um, but that it's sorry, go ahead. I don't. Well, I don't think that's quite right. So let's let's compare like um, a gold standard system to a fiat system, right? Yeah. So. Gold system, yeah, whoever has the gold kind of has the, le the legitimacy to print the money that's supposed to represent the gold. And as long as people can kind of check on that equation and is that link still valid? As long then, as they have the, the option then, to redeem. The option to redeem. But once you sever that link, you know, in arguably whenever that happened, 1933 or 1971 or whatever, mm -hmm. then you're back to a system where government basically has just the the monopoly on the use of force to say you have to use our fiat to pay the taxes to us or else we throw you in jail mm -hmm. right that's ultimately what get what that's the you know the proof of of proof of jailability really of is force. what yeah. <laughs> is what right. you know legitimates uh the fiat currency and I think it's still kind of an open question, an empirical question, whether proof of work or proof of stake or, or other kinds of proof are going to end up being more or less decentralized. Like, I remember kind of vaguely hearing about Bitcoin, you know, 10 years ago. Hmm. And I thought, this is really cool because it sounds like anybody, you know, with a home laptop will be able to mine this stuff. And that's cool because everybody has a laptop and that sounds totally decentralized. Mm -hmm. But then you get special purpose mining rigs mm -hmm. that mean it's actually not economically viable for the mining, at least, to be as decentralized as one might have hoped. 
And that's just kind of a technological contingency, mm-hmm. you know, that it happened to like play out that way. You, you like you could in principle have had technology develop in a way that, you know, everyone's laptop was like good enough at at turning electricity into into Bitcoin that it's worth doing. So it's just kind of happenstance that you get highly centralized mining, at least in the last few years, of Bitcoin. Um, and it is so I think it's really, really hard to make kind of a priori judgments about some of these these issues mm-hmm. about what is actually going to be the most decentralized. Um, you know, if if enough people buy into proof of stake platforms around the world, um, you know, if if every if everyone who's kind of in the global middle class invest like 20% of their net wealth in crypto, then I think proof of stake would be really seriously decentralized. Like it would be really, really hard for any small group of, of actors to, uh, to dominate it because the aggregate wealth of the middle class is vastly greater than the aggregate wealth of the highly rich. Well, so my question is this though, let's just hypothetically say that all wealth is stored in some proof of stake money. Proof of stake pays a yield that is commensurate to your holdings, right? So the larger your stack, the more percentage you get of that. How does that not create more wealth disparity over time? Like clearly the the, the upper cohort in that hierarchy of wealth is going to be uh, earning, I guess, if that's the word you want to use, a disproportionate share of the total wealth in the hierarchy. So the bottom cohort is going to be pushed further down as the top of the cohort gets increasingly rich. How does that not self-destruct? Well, okay. So if everyone who owns a particular crypto asset gets like, let's say, staking rewards in proportion to how much they have, mm. then every, everyone who's in the asset at all increases their net worth by the same amount proportionally, right? The, the big economic inequality is between those who own the asset at all versus those who don't. Well, that's what I'm saying. In this hypothetical example, let's just assume it's just one, there's one money. It's Ethereum proof of stake globally. Everyone's yep. using Ethereum. It's all proof of stake based. How does that hire and assume there's a dis, an uneven distribution of wealth as there always is, especially with yep. Ethereum. Um, how does that hierarchy of wealth not become more divergent, more top-heavy and, and bottom-heavy over time? I might be wrong, but I think the math works out that just if, if everyone's you know, net wealth is increasing at like the same amount, let's whatever, 5% a year or whatever your staking rewards are, then... Um, but that's the point, the rewards. If, let's say there's zero economic growth too, just to keep it simple. The rewards, who's paying the rewards is that it flows to the top, but it's coming out of the middle and the bottom. This is what this is what, how central bank is. Central banking is right. proof of stake built on top of gold's proof of work is my point. So I think it fundamentally does not work. Okay. So I think this is, if you've, and this is where my newbiness as a, as a, as a, crypto enthusiast is going to start be- becoming like painfully apparent to all the Bitcoin maximalists. Totally fine. Been in this, yeah. 
space for 10 years. So don't brigade me too hard on this. <laughs> but I think there will be a fundamental difference between crypto projects that provide an actual uh, use case that does something good for people economically. Like it actually makes it easier to do a real estate transaction or it's right, a payment right, okay. processing system that actually makes it more efficient than Visa or, or PayPal, or it's um, something that helps you secure your educational credentials in a way that are hard to, hard to fake or your work history or whatever. Yeah. So there's a set of things that have an actual use case where people are willing to, you know, pay to get the benefit of you know, the crypto project, maybe Chainlink's a good example. Like if you actually provide a good connection between, you know, crypto platforms and objective real world data, and those are like verifiable in a decentralized way, then Chainlink, insofar as it succeeds, will provide valid, valuable, you know, data to other crypto projects, and therefore it should be able to pay staking rewards in proportion to its value on yeah. the other hand right if you have a crypto project that isn't it's doing sweet f all it's not actually doing anything other than being like a store of value alternative to bitcoin right that's just a ponzi scheme absolutely and that's a that's an engine of of for creating wealth inequalities yeah. and and volatility and and misery so I, I think I, I agree about that. Yeah, I, I will see that I'm not versed enough in the pros. I will say they are prospective value propositions of these coins because I don't think anything is market proven at this point. Nothing has succeeded in the marketplace besides Bitcoin, I would argue. Um, and I'll loosely define success right now to quantify it as above $100 billion in realized capitalization. And that's a threshold Bitcoin only crossed in August 2019. So it's relatively newly successful by the metric I'm laying out. Um, I will see that perhaps one of those use cases could be satisfied, could be first of all discovered and then satisfied using some proof of stake or alternative distributed consensus mechanism. However, I do not think it's possible to have a monetary system not based on proof of work. I think it's just you're, you're in thermodynamic reality that you have to, to assure the supply fixity of 21 million, you have to require energy expenditure to secure that network. It's, it's part of the, it's almost biological, I guess you would say. It's you're constraining anyone from breaking the credibility of Bitcoin's supply assurance. Mm -hmm. And if you, if there's any, if that is relaxed, even in the slightest in any way, someone's going to exploit that attack vector in one way or another. So it's very, like, it's very simple, kind of a hard and fast rule. And this is where Bitcoiners get so obstinate and passionate about it. In my opinion, I think it's, it, it, I, I see what they're saying with it. You have to have energy expenditure to make sure it's 21 million. And there's no, I'm not saying there's absolutely ever, never going to be an alternative, but to the extent of human knowledge today, there is no alternative. I think I like probably 80 or 90% agree with you about that. Like in terms of just the pure, 
store of value cryptocurrency proper. Mm-hmm. Um, I think proof of work has a, a lot going for it. The only crypto I would invest in uh, is one that has one of these other specific use cases and where they're kind of competing against some legacy system that we know is already making money. Mm-hmm. Right? We know Visa as a company, as a payment processor, is already making money processing payments. So something that challenges that incumbent could potentially you know, make some money, not as much as Visa or else mm-hmm. they wouldn't be cheaper, but they'll make something. We know that there are many, many um, industries in society that could potentially be kind of blockchainified or, or cryptographically secured and decentralized. Social media no. is another example, right? No. If somebody invents a really strong form of social media that is uncensorable and secure, and we're like, I know if I put up you know, my YouTube videos on there, nobody can take them down. That's a real value proposition, and people, you know, should be able to pay for that, and that's a revenue generator, and it's and it's real. Yeah. So I think I think but, it makes sense to separate like the money function, mm-hmm. the store value function, from this the like the vast universe of other economic activity that we do that some of which could potentially be um, based on blockchain. I agree. Uh, except I would add that the decentralization feature, like if you're trying to create something that can't be censored, social media, messaging, whatever, you have to build that on Bitcoin. That's an inherently, you never want to have the second most secure censorship resistance, right? This is just like government, right? Government's sort of inherently centralizing because as they are the monopolist on violence. When one government encounters another one and, you know, they go to war, one conquers the other one, everyone's going to want to be under the protection of the guy that won. Because if you're under the protection of the guy that lost, you're always vulnerable to the protection of the guy that won. So when it comes to blockchain security, you always want to build your uncensorable product on the longest, uh, most energy dense and rigid chain. And that's what Bitcoin is. So I'd add that there might be alternative use cases for alternative crypto assets but if it's if you're truly looking for decentralization or money then it's got to be built on bitcoin and so that that's a lot of it that's a lot of the use cases i think for distributed consensus and that's why this is i think the framework for bitcoin maximalist and i know you said you're you're new in 2021 everyone comes in and ha- we get lost in the jungle with all these different ideas a lot of people come back to bitcoin over time Mm-hmm. Um, that's where I'm at today. I, again, but it's we're, it's such a new space that you can't say for certainty nothing will ever work. But there are very strong arguments uh, in favor of Bitcoin being a winner take most at least. Yeah, I mean the the thing. So just just to make it clear my kind of position on this, I think Bitcoin's awesome. I think Satoshi was a genius. I think if it's possible to award Nobel prizes to anonymous inventors like mm. he she they should definitely get you know Nobel prize for bitcoin i think um it's a fabulous investment i hope it succeeds in becoming like the globally dominant store of value um i think the political implications of that 
the social implications are are fascinating and it would be you know absolutely revolutionary i think it would seriously undermine the oppressiveness of most uh governments i think it would dramatically increase standards of living throughout the world particularly in countries that are subject to kind of crazy inflation and volatility and you know economic oppression and governments just straight up stealing their their cash and their property yes so that's all awesome and then around the margins you know we can kind of argue like um are there other legit use cases for crypto that could be revolutionary in other ways and if so you know what are the best ways to secure uh value on those chains i don't know i'm i'm kind of more of an agnostic about that second question yeah i, I try and uh you know i run a fund in the space i've looked at hundreds of these deals and i i hold 100 bitcoin today so all i can say is i've i've tried to test multiple theories and over time I guess like anything else, kind of Darwinian in a way, you test all this different variation. If you keep coming back to one solution, you, you tend to become a little bit more reinforced in that. So I have to ask you, uh, was that virtue signaling just now? <laughs> that was that was mostly trying to avoid being uh <clears throat> you know brigaded by the the, the maxis on on Twitter. Yeah, well that, that has happened to me over over the last few months, once oh, in a while. It's happened to and, me as well. So I and uh i love those guys but um well there's the ones who are like virtuously earnestly excited you know about bitcoin's huge social political economic potential and then there's yeah. like the group of like hardcore sadistic trolls who just kind of love making yeah 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 them. yes yes how dare you invest in that shit coin miller what are you doing yes and uh i i have no time for the trolls um but on the other hand <clears throat> i've been in that kind of maximalist position before with regard to other issues right uh -huh. so right. a lot of people consider evolutionary psychologists like the moral equivalent of bitcoin maxis with regard to like the nature nurture issue oh you interesting know? could you, could you expand on that basically we're like um whatever information it's useful for an organism to have, it will tend to internalize into its genome and make uh -huh. it as robust as possible against environmental disruption, right? Uh -huh. And one implication of that is that when an organism's growing from a you know, fertilized egg, it should try to be relatively hardened and stabilized and anti-fragile against environmental disruption, including parental or social influences interesting right so people will say ah that's genetic determinism bad 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 morally bad <sighs> um but to me it's sort of just like that's what evolution would tend to do with useful information is like compile it down into the genotype right in the most reliable hard to fake way and the idea that humans would grow as sort of a blank slate that that's really vulnerable to any kind of environmental inputs or traumas or parenting or whatever yeah seems like wildly implausible so i've been in the position you know of defending a view that sounds like almost psychotically extreme to most people yeah 
so I, I like I understand the social dynamics of of being a maximalist because I've been in that position with regard to lots of things I'm interested in evolutionary psychology, behavior genetics. Um, I I do a lot of research on intelligence and like IQ, and people get very uncomfortable with that. Like, oh, there's multiple intelligences. It's not oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. general intelligence, and I'm like, yeah, it's mostly general intelligence. And um, so you know, I I I understand what it's like to be the sort of righteous, like beleaguered minority that's got the truth on their side. Mm. It's just I think we all have a moral responsibility not to be too trollish when we're in that position. As much flack as we've gotten, right in the past, you know. So that's interesting. So a culture itself is an organism, right? Or it's a super organism, a collective organism, whatever you want to call it. And when a culture is emergent, right, it's kind of fighting for its initial little rooting of territoriality, trying to carve out some space for itself. It needs to exhibit this extremist, obstinate, you know, just this anti-fragile characteristics, as you called it. Um, I think of like a sapling, like a, a little seed trying to get out of the earth. It's got to go hard and scrap. It's really got to fight to get out of the earth. But then once it starts to establish roots, you know, it, it forms this kind of big solid trunk. It doesn't need to fight and be so extreme anymore. It's just, it depends on its own stability. So there's this, maybe this is kind of like a bootstrapping process. Or like a computer is running very deterministic, specific programs early on. It's just telling it, how do you run this program? And how do you run this program? And each program is kind of steadily more complex until the computer fully boots up. And then we have all this freedom and choice. You know, my computer right now, it's not deterministic. It's doing whatever I, it's interfacing with me. Um, it gives me a lot of freedom, I guess you would say. But I can't, I don't have a lot of freedom over the bootstrapping process. You know, I just press power and it does its thing. So, I mean, to use your, your analogy, I think, you know, the state we're in is like, if you're the sapling, you've got to be scrappy. You've got to grow as fast as you possibly can to you yes. know, outcompete the other saplings. You've got to grab your share of the, the, the light. Yes. You've got to grow to tree size, you know, or die. Um, now, every mature tree, if it had any memory, it would be like, ah, it really sucked to be a sapling. I still have wounds, emotional wounds from my saplinghood, and I've got a chip on my shoulder about being a sapling. And a lot of the Bitcoin maxis kind of strike me as like, it, you guys are the, the, the giant redwood, like you're a trillion dollar dominant crypto. And you're still carrying around these these ancient wounds from whatever 2014 when your parents made fun of you and like, it's time to get over it and grow up and just enjoy your success and realize th the threats to the redwood are not upcoming saplings or newbies who want to dance around the saplings or invest in cardano or chain link the threats are the lumberjacks, the loggers, the yeah. Fed, or the, the the government who have noticed you're you're starting to soak up a bunch of the sunlight, yeah, yeah. and you're you're really messing with their their monopoly. Um, that's the enemy. Yes, you know, cr crypto newbies who are like, yeah, maybe I'm seventy percent in Bitcoin, but I want to spread some money around to other yeah. places. Like, 
that's not your enemy. Yes. And no. so they lose money on some projects you consider shit coins. So, so, so what? As long as they're invested in this space, which we all hope will succeed, you know, amazingly, yes. then, um, then we'll all be fine. So I, I agree that the, the cultural immune system, which is necessary for survival, uh, this is what you know, the commonly called Bitcoin toxicity, it does need to be directed at the, th the actual threats to the core protocol itself, which, in this, yeah, at this point, I think are largely state-level actors, state-level threats. It's a trillion-dollar asset. So I think it's a great way to look at it, that um, it's a very necessary feature for survival. Indeed, there would be no Bitcoin without it. You know, it sheltered it in the early days and it helped it survive. There were threats to Bitcoin, uh, multiple, multiple political and, and protocol level threats that the toxicity helped it survive. So it's critical to its success, but now it needs to be reoriented towards the new matrix of threats that it faces. Um, I agree with that. Yeah, it's... You know, pick whatever analogy you want. You could do a military analogy that, like, you don't you want you don't want to fight the last world war. You want to anticipate the upcoming threats that mm. are that are you know based on new new types of attacks. You don't want to have a bunch of like aircraft carriers vulnerable to hypersonic anti ship ballistic missiles mm. in an era when anti ship right. ballistic missiles exist. You don't want to have a military that is. A whole bunch of hardware that's extremely vulnerable to cyber attacks. You don't want to have um, a Bitcoin ecosystem that might be extremely good at defending the protocol against inflation, mm. let's say, but that has no lobbying power in Washington, no effective PR, no journalists on your side, um, you know, no ability to handle uh, FUD in a sustained or or effective or fast moving way like those are the real threats yeah and um i think every every maturing industry you know realizes at a certain point uh you have to have public relations you have to have lobbyists you have to engage with the public at an effective psychological level that protects your protocol from like adverse public reaction mm -hmm. and i don't see that being done all that effectively yet by the crypto industry and that's one you know not that i could have that much of a role in it but i think there mm -hmm. is a role for behavior behavioral sciences mm -hmm. in in kind of helping like connect the crypto industry as it is to the general public and and where they are in terms of their understanding of it because mm -hmm. crypto is one of the most counterintuitive technologies ever developed. Mm -hmm. It's extremely hard to wrap your head around. It, mm -hmm. it took me months before I even started, you know, to get a, a, a glimmer of understanding. And I'm a pretty smart guy with a pretty good understanding of economics and game theory. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. if it took me a while, you know, your average, like, um, you know, working class or, or middle class person without that kind of background, yeah. they really need a lot of help. Yes. A lot of warm, supportive help. Yes. 
not not being kind of lectured at or yes i i did um i agree with you completely i was i was on a podcast earlier um where there's this there's this uh belief in the toxic bitcoin maximalist cohort that none of it matters bitcoin's inevitable and it's like okay i sort of somewhat agree that i think the economic incentives of bitcoin will cause it to succeed no matter what but the shape and the the details of its success and who it ends up influencing and impacting i think we have a large degree of control over and i was on this show earlier today uh with a guy and he was speaking about the toxic culture as well he's like could you imagine looking you know a middle class he, he was an african-american guy i was doing the show with he said could you imagine looking an african-american woman in the eyes and telling her have fun staying poor and it's like th that element yeah. of culture although it may have served a purpose to preserve the core protocol is decreasingly relevant as bitcoin grows and interfaces with more and more cultures right the bitcoin evolves past its own toxic culture in a way and I'm with you. I hope to be on the forefront of that evolution, right? Like I'll always have respect for the toxicity and what they got us this far. But here is the other way to think about it is that if Bitcoin is just an internet protocol and we know that protocols ossify over time, right? We all use TCP IP. We all use HTTP. It becomes the norm. When it becomes the norm, there's no need to be toxic about it. There's no one running around on the internet trolling like, oh, TCP IP or or have fun staying poor. Like it just doesn't matter because the protocol is ossified. So I think that's the direction I see Bitcoin going. It's just going to ossify like an internet protocol and toxicity will be a chapter in its early development. So I, I'm with you. Yeah, hopefully. And, um, you know, I think people like you who are doing like social media outreach and videos that are like um, trying to level up you know, the, the interested public's understanding of this space and trying to get to the fundamentals. Mm. I think that that kind of activity plays a, a crucial role in this. Um, you know, by analogy, it's kind of like I've, I've devoted like arguably about half of my scientific career to scientific outreach and kind of like trying to explain um, other people's science to the general public, mm -hmm. because I think if the science only exists in journal publications in some library, it, it doesn't like really exist in an actionable, usable way. Mm -hmm. it, it only really exists if the ideas get out there to the general public. Mm. And I think, you know, the view that Bitcoin will triumph no matter what, even with the worst PR and even with organized, you know, opposition from government, legacy finance, mainstream media, and public opinion. I mean, good luck with that. Mm. There's never been a political revolution in history right. that's succeeded against that kind of headwind. And if right. you think that Bitcoin is, among other things, a political revolution, you know, you've got to treat it as such and take the kind of, um, you know, call it propaganda, call it public relations, um, call it public outreach, whatever. You got, you got to take that seriously. Holding Bitcoin, then it's I've always considered it kind of a vote, like you're voting against political authority effectively, or you're, you're voting for 
the core principles of free market capitalism in the purest sense. It's like, this is property that you own that you can trade freely with others and no one can stop you. It's after this conversation, it seems to me that it's also a virtue signal in a way. Like if you're, yeah. hold, you're holding oh, yeah. Bitcoin, talking about Bitcoin, I mean, an authentic one, I guess. I mean, I guess it could also be inauthentic. Is that accurate? I think functionally in many you know, subcultures around the world, uh, interest in crypto is uh, it's an intelligence indicator. Like it's it's a signal. Mm. I'm smart. I understand something mm. that's incredibly counterintuitive, mm. and that gets quite um, technical, and that involves a lot of thinking about kind of the game theory of social interaction and honesty mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. governance and all that. So it's an intelligence signal. I think it's a signal of kind of hope and optimism that the world can be better. And that I'm not just some some doomer pilled nihilist who's like everything shit and it'll get even worse. Um, it can be a like for the Bitcoin maximalists, it can be a little bit of a signal of kind of assertiveness or disagreeableness or orneriness. Mm -hmm. um, and I hope that you know to maximize its public appeal, that like signaling those traits maybe softens softens a little bit mm -hmm. um but i think it's also a virtue signal in the sense that it does convey a certain set of political values around um sort of free markets but all you know anti-government um but more generally just the idea that um money and value should belong to the people and and should be permissionless and should not depend on some central monopoly through use of force that says mm. like you're allowed to have those forms of value and you're not allowed to have those other forms of value. Mm. Yes, I agree. That so that's maybe to sharpen it a bit, that's the point I'd like to help spread the signal about is that it's a vote against coercion in general, right? Like we don't need coercion anymore. We've used it a lot to organize ourselves forever, basically, but we're kind of, we're growing past it potentially. And, you, you know, human societies have effectively grown past coercion in so, so many ways. Yes. Like, um, the Steven Pinker books like Enlightenment Now document the many ways in which like overall rates of violence and theft and expropriation have you know, been radically reduced in the last 500 years. Mm -hmm. And that's awesome. Like most, you know, most developed countries, you can walk around the streets without worrying that you will be, uh, you know, robbed. And that's a huge kind of progress. And I think we, we should simultaneously be grateful for that history of kind of gradual liberation from force and fear. Mm -hmm. And you know, celebrate that, but also say we still have quite a ways to go, particularly in terms of, uh, let's say, monetary policy. Mm, agreed. Well, Jeff, thanks so much for coming on. Uh, maybe you just let it's the audience pleasure. know. Let's let people know where they can find you. Um, I've got a website, uh, primalpoly.com, and my I've got four books out: The Mating Mind, that's about human evolution; Spent, which is about consumer behavior and marketing. Um, one called Mate that I wrote with Tucker Max, which is dating advice to young single men. 
uh, based on sexual selection theory. And uh, most recently, Virtue Signaling, which came out in 2019. Short little book. They're all on Amazon. And um, I really appreciate the opportunity for a, a, a total naive crypto newbie <laughs> like me to be on to be on your podcast. It's well, I, pre a, I appreciate a real pleasure. letting a biology newbie like me talk to you. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thanks, Robert. Have a good day.